Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. For my loyal listeners, I appreciate you hanging in. Summer 2021, as I am campaigning for the second ward, Tom's River Township Council seat. And it is taking up a lot of time and bandwidth. It's fun. I'm out meeting voters. I have knocked on, I don't know, 500, 600 doors, met a lot of nice people. But it is taking up a lot of time. Hence, I have been doing these podcasts on an alternating week basis versus weekly. So I get a little backed up. A couple of quick tales from the uh, trail. Well, really one theme on multiple occasions, including people that are complete strangers, including people whose doors I have knocked, have said to me things like, you have to be crazy to do this. Anyone who wants to run for office should have their head examined. I get a lot of laughs out of that, and I take it as encouragement because uh, I think it's true to throw yourself into government service while also trying to run a business, law practice, uh, keep all the rest of the important things in life like family and spouse and children going while also campaigning for office as a long shot candidate is, is both energizing and sign of a little crazy. Back to the bold side bar in New Jersey Supreme Court. I have four cases for us today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to dive in deeper into two and kind of cut across the surface on a couple of the other ones. The first case is a big punitive damages case against the state. Then we've got an interesting dog bite case and two cases arising out of our criminal justice process. Let's jump right into Pritchett v. New Jersey. This is a $10 million punitive damages case, 1.8 mil on the compensatory side. Justice Lavecchia for a unanimous court deals with the troubling issue of punitive damages against a public entity. And just from a policy standpoint and from a good steward of public dollars standpoint, all of us taxpayers would like to believe that there are limits or governors in place to punitive damages awards against a public entity because it's coming out of the pockets of all of us fine New Jersey taxpayers. In this case, Pritchett was a corrections officer and was injured on the job and had apparently this exposed some underlying medical conditions. Pritchett was pushed to resign because she was unable to get back to work had used up all of her time and was utilizing unpaid leave to assess and diagnose her medical conditions. There's evidence of the emails between the human resources folks and the captain, the boss, with the captain saying, cut her off at this point. If she doesn't come back to work, then she's terminated. And you you see in the opinion, this kind of seesaw back and forth between human resources who wants to give the employee all the chances needed to figure out what was going on medically and get on the right track and, if possible, come back to work, whereas the, the boss, the captain, was looking to clip the wings of this employee. Ultimately, the employee, Pritchett, is told, if you don't resign by the end of the week, termination will begin and you will get no pension. So, feeling that squeeze, the employee, Pritchett, resigned 
and qualified for a disability pension. Pritchett had not served long enough to get a regular pension, you know, one of these 25-year pensions, so had only served around five years at the time that she was uh, forced out. She sort of came back and knocked on the door and said, hold on a second, I was not afforded a process under the ADA procedures that I would have been entitled to. Problem was, she had already resigned retired and qualified for the disability pension, so the state closed the door back in Pritchett's face. Pritchett sues and enjoys a sizable recovery, compensatory damages of over $1.8 million, plus interest, plus legal fees, and $10 million in punitive damages. That brings us to the United States Supreme Court case, BMW v. Gore, which deals with factors that need to be addressed in awarding punitive damages, such as reprehensibility, the availability and or difference between punitive damages and civil penalties, and the disparity between the harm and the punitive damages award. Uh, The New Jersey case that adopts the same mindset as the BMW case is the Baker case. Justice Lavecchia, as always a teacher, also addresses the requirement by the courts to look at punitive damages awards against public entities with heightened scrutiny. That's the Lockley case because the normal pieces of the puzzle are not there. In a claim against a private citizen or entity, the ability of the defendant to pay punitive damages must be factored in, i.e. we don't want to drive everyone into bankruptcy and to create new sort of wards of the state and new problems. So the idea is the state can raise a lot of money. The state has a lot of resources, has ability to tax and borrow, etc. So in theory, has an unlimited amount of funds to pay punitives. So we don't want courts and juries and plaintiffs thinking, well, if I get punitives against the state, it's an unlimited number of zeros. That's bad public policy. And secondly, the source of funds, as I mentioned, is the public fisc. That's a dollar out of everyone's pocket. You think about it, $10 million in punitives. We have roughly 8.8 million people in New Jersey. I should have checked the census, sorry. So it cost every New Jerseyan a dollar just in punitives for this case. So good policy is remember that the source of funds is the public fisc. The counter to the punitive damages here from the defense essentially saying this was not the most egregious example of bad conduct in a discriminatory employment scenario and that the damages were excessive. There was also discussion of the five to one ratio applicable to certain punitive damages claims. It was not applicable specifically here in a in a law against discrimination case, but the idea is compensatory damages times five would be the cap for punitive damages. It didn't apply here specifically, but close enough, by the time you take the compensatory damages, the legal fees, the interest, it's around $2 million times five, 
10 million dollars so it wasn't far off at all from what it might have been had this case been subject to the five to one ratio and just a note on who participated in the case so who does the state hire when it needs a lawyer well in this instance going up to the supreme court who else but former new jersey attorney general and former New Jersey Supreme Court Justice Peter Venero. For the respondent, the plaintiff in the case, attorney Deborah Maines, M-A-I-N-S, and for the amicus, you've got National Employment Lawyers Association, New Jersey Association for Justice, and the New Jersey League of Municipalities with my old colleague, Bob Renaud arguing for the league in this case. Next one is Goldhagen v. Pazmowitz. This is the dog bite case. Justice Patterson writing for the unanimous court. And as always, Justice Patterson is the sort of finest structured storyteller in these opinions goes through what happened with two dogs, Otis and Louie, when they were dropped off at the kennel. Question is whether a dog owner is potentially liable, even when dropping a dog off at a kennel, even when giving some warnings that this dog may be a little dangerous, this dog has already nipped people, etc., and indeed, the defendant having filled out a form, and we'll get to that form in just a second. So, start with the dog bite statute. We have a strict liability dog bite statute and have had the same since 1933. Under the common law, an owner would be liable only if the owner knew that the dog presented a risk based upon PS behavior. Strict liability means it's not a negligence standard. If the dog bites, the owner is liable, period. What comes along with strict liability is the Comparative Negligence Act. So that if the plaintiff is assessed a percentage of fault, it can impact the damages recovery or eliminate the damages recovery altogether if the plaintiff is found to be 51% liable. So let's get into the details here. It does matter. So Goldhagen is a technician at a kennel, seems to have some confidence and experience in handling dogs, is given sort of a high-level warning, oh, the dog has nipped my son, and the dog should be muzzled, and the dogs should eat separately. Otis and Louie, or I'm saying the dogs. In this case, Louie is the more worrying dog. Louie is a Rottweiler mix. So there's not two spaces for Goldhagen to feed the dogs. So Otis and Louie are together and she's sitting with them and getting them set up to eat and to take their uh, medicine, in particular for Louie, a ringworm pill as part of the uh, bowl of food. While she's doing her job, she goes to look at Otis. She turns back to Louie and Louie bites her in the face. She suffers severe injuries. So, a sub-question arises, did the defendant provide a sufficient and accurate 
warning to the kennel? Well, not exactly. In fact, the defendant, Ms. Pazmowitz herself, had been bitten by Louie and needed 30 stitches. So it was not just a little nip of the sun. On the flip, Goldhagen admitted that she did not even read the intake form. And so whether the warning would have been sufficient or not, we will never get to that. Goldhagen required substantial medical treatment and essentially has a permanent injury. So the court needed to break down whether under the Reynolds case, an independent contractor, presumably a person with specialized knowledge in a a dangerous field, is unable to access a strict liability statute such as the dog bite statute. Here, the court is very clear in reading the actual language of the statute. Remember, our court loves to interpret and break down statutes the Prospero v. Penn is perhaps the most cited case when it comes to dealing with reading the plain language of the statute. In this case, it merely says that a person who was bitten by a dog has the right to pursue claims, strict liability claims, versus being stuck with the common law claims. So the court blocks the defense when it comes to that aspect. And, and this, this gets to the assumption of the risk, primary assumption of the risk. The court states here that since the statute is clear that a person, doesn't say a person who's not employed in that field or doesn't have expertise in that field, a person who was bitten by a dog is able to access the statute, that the assumption of the risk defense does not apply as it might in other dangerous activities because the statute doesn't provide for it. However, and this is very important, the case now remanded specifically provides the opportunity for the defense to explore and to utilize the knowledge and experience of the plaintiff to impact the measurement of fault. Remember, 51% plaintiff fault means no recovery. Any percentage that they're able to knock down will certainly reduce the size of the damages award. The court reminds the trial court in addressing the comparative negligence procedure that first damages that the plaintiff would have been entitled to are established and then fault is assessed and then the actual damage is calculated. So very interesting case. I wouldn't be surprised to see that one come back. Looks like the type of case that would be some pretty big numbers. Next one is a COVID case. I'm going to do it quickly. State v. Wildemar Dangsel, D-A-N-G-C-I-L, Justice Solomon writing for the unanimous court. Another defendant seeking to get the court to throw out a procedure adopted during COVID in connection with a criminal jury trial. Brian Neary for the defense, a bunch of government agencies. We've got the Bergen County Prosecutor. We've got the Public Defender. We've got the Attorney General, Camden County Prosecutor, in for the Prosecutors Association, Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, New Jersey State Bar Association, and ACLU. So lots of amici here. In essence, Dangsel makes two arguments. One, that he was deprived of his right to presence and representation at a certain stage of the jury of voir dire process, and two, 
that due to COVID impacting minority populations greater than the population at large, that the jury pool was therefore insufficient. So as to the second one, very quickly, there was no evidence presented. The court really doesn't spend much time on that aspect of the defendant's argument. It's really conjecture and speculation that the pool was insufficient. In fact, the court cites the numbers. There were 800 people pulled, 200 and some qualified and were eligible to participate. So there was a large pool. There was no evidence that there was some specific impact on this defendant's trial and, or I should say, on this defendant's jury pool selection. As to the first piece, the state argued and the Supreme Court accepted the argument that the procedures that have been in place for a lengthy period of time really didn't change. That is, the jury management process filters through jurors utilizing procedures that are in place well in advance of the litigants and counsel being involved. That is, a bunch of data crunching, eligibility determinations, etc., that happen before the jury pool that I'm putting in air quotes shows up at the courthouse ever gets in. In fact, the procedures that the jury management folks handle, the procedures filed by the Bergen County jury management folks are the same procedures that they followed pre-COVID, sending out questionnaires, fielding uh, problems from potential jurors, et cetera, et cetera, something that's been going on forever, that the 800 becomes 200 because 600 can't participate. You can't find them. They don't live where they used to live. Uh, they have some specific conflict. They have a, a date conflict. They have a medical conflict. All those things are handled by the staff. You don't have defense lawyer voidering 800 people to determine if they would be whittled down to the 200 who actually show up and are able to serve. So the court said to defendant Dangsel and all of the amici on the defense side that the procedures are fair, consistent, and really not that different than how things were handled pre-COVID. Final one for today is a Megan's Law case. This is Justice Fernandez Vina, again for a unanimous court. And in this case, it is in the matter of registrant J period D dash F, J period D dash F applied for relief and to get out of community supervision for life under the Megan's Law registration process. A highly technical opinion regarding statutory interpretation and timing. The statute was changed effective January 8, 2002, so that if a defendant has committed multiple sexual assaults, that the defendant would not be entitled to the relief that would be provided within the statute, even if the defendant had been essentially rehabilitated and had not committed any acts for 15 years as provided for in the statute. In this case, the defendant had committed more than one sexual offense and was convicted after 
the statute went into effect. However, all of the defendant's offenses occurred prior to the change in the statute. Hence, the defendant was not subject to this restriction for the multiple sex offenses and had provided some volume of medical documentation and had abstained from any sort of crime, sexual acts, etc., criminal sexual activity for 15 years. So he qualified to be released from part of the community supervision for life. So that's a technical, technical issue. I don't know how many other people would fit into this very narrow criteria, but the Supreme Court, as it always tells us, is always in the business of protecting liberties. And in this case, this defendant fit a certain criteria and went all the way up to the New Jersey Supreme Court for this sort of very narrow decision. I would be really surprised if we see another case like this come up to the court because it's just not that frequent of an issue. And we've got a a now nearly 20-year-old revision to the statute that eliminates the possibility of being released from the community supervision for life if you've got multiple sex offenses that occurred after January 8, 2002. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging in with me. I love doing this. I will continue doing it every other week here until November. And hopefully uh, I will have a lot more time on my hands once my campaigning days are behind me. Thanks very much. Please feel free to pass the bold sidebar along if you're in the court on a case. You've just gotten out of the court on a case. You want to talk about your experiences working in the court, arguing cases in the court, please reach out. Easy to find. Jeff Horn signing off for the Bold Sidebar. Thanks.